abbreviated series on the Ten Commandments, slightly abbreviated due to Irene last week taking out Commandments 8 and 9, but tonight, today we'll, <laughs> we'll cover uh, the Tenth Commandment and the Final Commandment. And uh, I, have, I have a friend who used to work for a law firm in Boston, and that firm had a sabbatical policy. If you were a senior partner once every seven years, you got a year off with pay, no work. How cool is that? year off with pay, no work. There were certain rules that were attached to the policy, of course, and one is you, you couldn't go to the beach or play golf for the year. You had to do something that would create personal growth. That's mental growth, not physical growth. You couldn't go to Cinnabon or Dunkin' Donuts for a year and grow that way. The senior partner that my friend worked for, he went to this small developing nation, I think in Micronesia, and he spent a year helping them create their constitution. I always wondered how that worked out because he was a real estate lawyer, and I always wondered what kind of constitution a real estate lawyer would do. <laughs> but imagine for a minute that you were that guy. You spend 15 or 20 hours on a plane, you get to this little developing island nation, and they say to you, we're really happy that you're here to help us develop our, our law, the the laws that will be the fabric of a society going forward. We only have one rule. You only get 10 of them, so make it count. What would your laws be? Well, some would probably be easy. You'd want to protect the sanctity of human life, so you'd probably want a law against murder or killing. You'd probably want to protect personal property, so you'd have a law against stealing or theft. But how many of us would use one of our 10 laws to prohibit coveting? Imagine what the people in that country would say when you say, oh, by the way, my 10th law is you won't covet. Say, coveting? Really? But that's exactly what God said. When he created the nation of Israel as a holy people, his final commandment was this in Exodus chapter 20. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Moses repeats the same commandment in Deuteronomy 5. Slightly different words. If you're a woman, you may prefer the Deuteronomy version because wife gets top billing over the house. But either way, God used one of his Ten Commandments to prohibit Coveting. As Andrew said, coveting is kind of an old-fashioned word. We hardly hear it anymore. We think of coveting as, a, as an old word. As a matter of fact, in Charles Dickens' story, The Christmas Carol, he described Ebenezer Scrooge as a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, clutching, covetous old sinner. And today, as Andrew mentioned, many of us aren't even exactly sure what covet means. Well, covet simply means to desire or to want something. And in and of themselves, coveting and desiring and wanting are not bad things. They're neutral. All of us have desires. When I was a kid, I desired to be like uh, Bill Bradley. Not because he was an All-American or a Rhodes Scholar or played for the Knicks. I desired to be like Bill Bradley because Bill Bradley was six foot five, and I thought it would be awesome to be six foot five. <laughs> that didn't work out well. I have desires today. For example, I desire to drive a new Ferrari. But I do not. I drive an old Mazda. I have a secret desire to have a wicked cool haircut like Andrew Rogers. <laughs> I do not <laughs> have a wicked, uncool haircut like Mr. Rogers. <laughs> Come on back. <laughs> we all have desires, and our desires are not always bad. Sometimes our desires are good. For example, is it wrong to desire to have a closer relationship with God? Of course not. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Matthew 22 that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Is it wrong to have a desire to get, have a good job so we can take care of ourselves and our families? 
Of course not. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy that the person who fails to take care of their family is worse than an unbeliever. Is it wrong to, get, have your, to desire to have your husband get up off the couch and stop watching the Red Sox and take you to dinner? I just started. I've lost control. <laughs> but I've hit a nerve somewhere. But is that wrong? <laughs> of course it's wrong. What's the matter with you? Give the guy a break. <laughs> Better to live in a wilderness than with a nagging and hot-tempered wife. <laughs> All right, I admit it. That is not a good exposition of God's word. <laughs> and before I get lynched, let's move on. But let's go back to that example for a second, because I think it will help us see one of the, or a couple of the aspects of the Tenth Commandment that we might not otherwise see. First, we can see just on its face that the Tenth Commandment clearly and plainly prohibits desiring or coveting or wanting our neighbor's spouse or our neighbor's goods. We cannot, should not, and are not to desire or want my, our neighbor's spouse or our neighbor's stuff. No questions, unequivocal, plain on its face. But the Tenth Commandment is really deeper than that. The Tenth Commandment is the only commandment that does not either prohibit or require specific action. Instead, the Tenth Commandment challenges the ceaseless mental activity of a covetous and envious spirit or heart. It challenges the self-interest in our hearts that ultimately leads to the action of sin. It takes aim directly at our heart, at our motivation. So in our example, if you want your husband to get up off the couch and take you out to dinner because you know it's not healthy for him to lie there all the time, or because you know if you go out to dinner that you'll be more loving to one another and it will improve your marital relationship, then that's not a bad desire. If you want your husband to get up off the couch and take you to dinner because that's what you want and you don't care what he thinks, then it is an evil desire and it likely violates the spirit of the Tenth Commandment. And that's what the Tenth Commandment does for us. It reminds us that sin is created in our hearts long before action takes place. It's pretty clear when we break one of the other commandments, when we commit adultery or steal or lie. But this commandment points to the heart. The Tenth Commandment reminds us that those actions were hatched in our hearts long before that action took place. When we steal, we steal because we covet our neighbor's goods. When we commit adultery, we commit adultery because we covet our neighbor's spouse. When we lie, we lie because we covet our reputation and want others to think more highly of us than we really are. But the Tenth Commandment, in the Tenth Commandment, God shows us that he isn't fooled by what's on the outside, that he knows our deepest and most inward thoughts and desires. And that's why many see the Tenth Commandment not only as the last commandment, but as a summary commandment of the spirit of all of the other nine commandments. That's also why the Tenth Commandment is probably the most difficult commandment to obey. I mean, it's hard enough not to lie or to cheat or to steal, to not do those actions. But to control the desires and the wants that produce those actions, to be constantly aware of what's going on in our hearts and our spirits, that's really hard. To not be covetous or selfish or greedy or envious or jealous, that's really, really hard. It almost seems impossible. 
But why would God give us such a difficult, almost impossible task? Well, as we've seen from the other sermons that we've had on the uh, Tenth Commandments, God does not give us this commandment or any of the others because he's some cosmic killjoy who doesn't want us to have any fun. Well, that he wants to make us feel guilty all the time and takes pleasure in when we fail to obey them and we feel guilty and, and beaten down. Well, God gives us these commandments, and this commandment in particular, because he loves us, because he knows us. He knows what's best for us and wants what's best for us. He wants us to be joyful and fulfilled, not empty and disheartened. And he's given us these commandments because he knows what we don't know. Quite simply, God is infinitely smarter than we are, and he knows what's best for us. So let's take a look at just a few, certainly not anywhere near all of the reasons why God gives us this painfully difficult commandment. First, God gives us this difficult commandment against coveting because he knows how we're wired. He knows how we're wired. As our creator, God is intimately familiar with who we are, what we do, and why we do it. God is never, never has been, and never will be surprised when we are inclined toward coveting. As a matter of fact, the very first sin was a sin of coveting. Look with me for a moment at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Eve saw that the tree was good, and she wanted it. She coveted it. She desired it. She desired to be like God, to have what God had, to be who God and only God is. And that one overpowering desire was enough to make them both disobey the single requirement that God had directly given them for life in the garden and to plunge this world into darkness and sin. God knows that we don't need to learn to covet. It comes naturally to us. The other day I was home with my grandkids and my seven-month-old grandson was sitting on the floor happily gnawing away on some little plastic toy. And his two-year-old sister came swooping in and grabbed it away from him and said, that's mine. And I thought to myself, whoa, she's usually like the sweetest little kid. Where did she learn that? And I think I figured it out. I think she learned it in the church nursery from your kids. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> she didn't need to learn it. It's in her DNA. She's her grandpa's little girl. And it's in her genes just like it's in mine. God knows that we're inclined to covet. And he's given us this commandment against coveting in order for us to control that inclination rather than to have that inclination control us. Second, God's given us this difficult commandment against coveting because he knows that a covetous heart will make us miserable. It will make us miserable. The life of the Christian should be characterized by joy. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4, to rejoice in the Lord always. But God knows that a covetous heart will rob us of that joy because a covetous heart never has enough. Prophet Isaiah in chapter 56 calls the leaders of his day dogs. He says, these dogs have fierce appetites. They never have enough. Solomon in chapter 5 says, the one who loves money is never satisfied with money, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. 
this too is futile. God knows that if we have a spirit of covetousness, his greatest blessings will never give us joy because our hearts will always crave more. Even to the point, even to the point where we will begin to crave that which we don't really even want simply because someone else has it. In a book called Siblings Without Rivalry, the authors tell the story of a woman who was cleaning uh, her cleaning out her freezer on a summer day. She had a freezer in the garage. It had a multiple-year buildup of ice in it. Have you ever been in that position? So she was cleaning it out. This is her story. The kids were in bathing suits. They playfully tossed a big slab of ice in the direction of one of the kids and said, here, have some ice. Immediately, the other two chimed in. I want some, too. I grabbed two more big slabs and slid them toward the other two. Then the youngest yelled, they have more. I said, you want more? Here's more, and threw a pot full of ice at his feet. The other two yelled, now he has more. I threw two more pots of ice in their direction. The first one cried, now they have more. By this time, all three children were ankle deep in ice and still yelping for more. As fast as I could, I flung huge chunks of ice at everyone's feet. Even though they were hopping up and down in pain from the cold, they continued to scream for more in a frenzy that one would gain an advantage over the other. That was when I realized how futile it was to make things equal. The children could never get enough, and as a mother, I could never give enough. What that woman learned that day, God is known from the beginning of time. He knows that hearts that never have enough, hearts that covet, will rob us of our joy. Third, God gives us this difficult commandment against coveting because he knows that coveting destroys community. James chapter 4 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have. So you kill, you covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. Listen, coveting makes us cheap because we want to hold on to what we have. It makes us worry because we're concerned about losing what we have. It makes us envious because we want what others want, have, and we don't. It makes us bitter because we feel mistreated that we don't have what we want. It makes us greedy and tired because we're always trying to get more. It makes us irritable and dissatisfied with life in general. And so the obvious question is this. What are the odds, what are the chances that a collection of covetous, cheap, worried, envious, bitter, tired, greedy, irritable, and dissatisfied people will produce a community of grace, peace, and love? Not so much. God gives us a difficult commandment against coveting because he knows that coveting destroys community. Fourth, God gives us this difficult commandment against coveting because he just he knows just how much a covetous heart hurts and offends him. It's like Andrew said in his children's sermon. What are we saying when we're unhappy with our, our lot in life, when we're dissatisfied with our lives, when we're envious of others? What we're saying is, God, you're not good. You're not righteous because you haven't given me what, what I want. And oh, by the way, what you have given me is not nearly enough. How hurtful would that be if someone you love said it to you? And that's exactly what we say to God. Everything we have comes from the hand of God, including eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. Yet we covet what we don't have. And we do that because we think that the antidote to coveting is acquisition. When in fact, we just learn that the covetous heart never has enough. In fact, the antidote to coveting is not acquisition. It's contentment, real biblical contentment, not bitter resignation, not, okay, I'll be content if you really want me to, but real contentment. And real contentment is learned behavior. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, 
I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. We need to learn to be content whatever our circumstances. And listen, there's a whole other sermon here that I can't get into this morning. But we need to learn to be content in our circumstances. In order to do that, we need to be a lot more grateful and thankful. Be a little less competitive and a little more loving. To be more generous. And most important, to, be, to fix our eyes, our hearts, our spirit on what is eternal, not, what, not, is what, not on what is temporal. God gives us a difficult commandment against coveting because he knows how much it hurts and offends him. Finally, God gives us this difficult commandment against coveting in order to push us, to prod us, to direct us, to drive us to Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of all the commandments, but especially this one. Those who are not followers of Jesus Christ, who do not believe, are usually deluded as to their level of righteousness in comparison to a perfectly just and holy God. You remember the story in Mark chapter 10 of the rich young ruler? Young man comes to Jesus. He says, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, obey the commandments, names them off. Young guy says, I've kept all those since I was a boy. <laughs> Good thing he was talking to Jesus and not to me, because I could not have resisted saying something very mature like, liar, liar, pens on fire. <laughs> I mean, really, you kept all the commandments since you were a kid. Give me a break. That's not what Jesus did. Mark tells us that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he very gently, very gently pointed out how deluded he was. He said, okay, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and come and follow me. And the guy couldn't do it. He couldn't do it because Jesus knew that he had placed his faith and his hope and his trust in his possessions. His possessions were his God. Kept all the commandments since you were a boy. It's Jesus' way of saying, buddy, you never made it past the first one. You were not to have any other gods before the true God. You never checked off the first box. If you were not a believer in Jesus Christ, God has given you this 10th commandment as an act of love to show you the real condition of your heart before a perfect holy God, to show you that you need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. Don't be deluded as to your standing before God. Now, I wish I could say that believers were never deluded, but I can't say that. Believers are usually deluded about their level of obedience to God. For example, the, the Barna Report claims that 77% of American Christians claim they have not failed to keep the commandment to obey their parents. 48% say they do not violate God's commandment against lying. I spend a lot of time with Christians. Those numbers seem very high. They'd certainly be high for me, I can tell you that. And I think God gives us as Christians this 10th commandment as a way of saying that he's not all that interested in how we appear on the outside or what we think of our own righteousness, but in whether our hearts are right with him. And if we take an honest look at our own hearts in light of this commandment, even as believers, we'll be compelled to run to Jesus for forgiveness and for the power to be obedient to God's command. Look, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you try to obey this commandment or any of the other nine commandments on your own, without the power of Christ, you have two alternatives, self-delusion or failure. That's it. We all need Jesus. The very purpose of this commandment, the very purpose of all the commandments, the very purpose of the Old Testament is to point the way to Jesus. Believer or unbeliever, we all need Jesus Christ. The unbeliever needs Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life. The believer needs Jesus for the power of his Holy Spirit to be obedient and sanctified. But either way, we need Jesus. And you know, I can't think of a better three words to end this examination of the Tenth Commandment or our examination of all Ten Commandments or to summarize the basic understanding or the summing of the message of the Ten Commandments than those three words. We need 
Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we see this command that is so, so difficult to, to grasp and to, and to obey. And we know that we need to run to you or else we can never, ever, by our own power, be obedient to your requirements. We are so great, grateful that you have given us not just things, but eternal life and the power of the Holy Spirit through your Son, Jesus. We are grateful that you have sent him to us. We put our faith and our hope and our trust in him and him alone to save us, to empower us, to love us. We pray these things in his name. Amen. This time I invite the uh, ushers to come forward and receive our offering. You can remain seated at this time while the ushers come around with the offering plates. And we're going to sing a final song today of worship to God. And invite you to stand with us after the offering plates have been passed. Thank you. 